An important announcement regarding this episode. In the time between us producing part one and part two of this series, a listener named Michael thoughtfully sent us a kind email regarding a book entitled Signs of the Gods, published in 1980 by Eric Von Doniken. We were unfamiliar with this book and had not read it as part of our preparation for these episodes since it did not pertain specifically to the Nazca lines. There are passages in it that we find to be racist in many of the speculations offered. Subsequently, we reviewed our presentation and made adjustments that we felt were necessary in light of this additional context, which we did not have at the outset. We would like to make it clear that Von Donneken's opinions in no way represent the opinions of anyone at Astonishing Legends. Listen to the Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Big giant up on a mountain range. I just got stopped by like some CIA agent. You know there's something right behind you. Right? Ed, you seem like you have something you want to say. I don't think you can park there. So you've been to Point Pleasant. Near Cheesecake Factory. This is all looking up. Men in black law enforcement thing. If he was shooting that on the way up, he would have had to go way out of his way. CIA or... I just want to give you an update. I'm not dead. Well, that's why this is on Patreon. Legends are still being created right now. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Wildgrain, Simply Safe, Peloton, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we introduced you to the enigmatic Nazca lines of Peru. We discussed their origins, discovery, and the ensuing research that many archaeologists undertook for decades and continue with today. Tonight, we will look at the theories behind what the purpose of the Nazca lines may be. And, as you've come to expect from us, we'll explore every possible theory we could scrape up from the totally mundane to the absolute fringe. That is, after all, our brand. When we finish this series, you'll know as much as possible for someone who hasn't visited the lines themselves, and maybe you'll reconsider some ideas you dismissed outright before now. Whatever the case, let's return to Peru to take an even closer look at the astonishing legend of the Nazca Lines. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Forrest Burgess, and this is Scott Philbrook. This collection of geoglyphs known today as the Nazca Lines is considered to be one of the most baffling enigmas of archaeology. Author Johann Reinhardt. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the Nazca Lines. And we're back. That we are, folks. This has been a fun series, and we got a lot of great theories and information to cover tonight. But first, we did want to make a quick announcement here. Our very own Mr. Forrest Burgess will be appearing in the new season of History's Greatest Mysteries on the History Mm. Channel, Mm. or the History Channel app, which is free to watch on most smart TVs or Apple TVs if you have a TV subscription to the History Channel already. And he's likely going to be on a few times in this new season, which is uh, season four of the show, hosted by Lawrence Fishburne. Is it you and him hung out a lot, right? Forrest, you're, you're close with Morpheus now? What if I told you we did not 
<laughs> okay. Oh, well. <laughs> it would have well, been cool. Uh, no, he's uh, come on, man. It's Morpheus. He ah, he's very a legend cool. in every way. Well, anyway, look for this specific episode of History's Greatest Mysteries coming up about the lost colony of Roanoke, which we covered ourselves uh, just a few years ago. Indeed. It'll be on the History Channel on February 20th at 8 p.m. in most time zones. But check your local listings, folks, to lock it down. Yes, Forrest will be in his trailer. And uh, one other Mm. quick message. There is currently a bit of a seismic shift happening in podcasting, which you may or may not have noticed. It's affecting the entire business, but we wanted to let everybody know we've been around a while. We have no intention of going anywhere because we love doing this. And it's been amazing to be able to present now over 250 episodes of Astonishing Legends over the past eight years to you for free. Certainly it has, but we have so much more to get to. We wouldn't be here if you hadn't supported our sponsors all of these years. Their faith in us, and in turn your support of them, is what keeps the show alive. And it means so much to us that you take the time to check them out, even when you don't have to. But we really appreciate it, and we hope we can deliver some great deals on useful, needed items that uh, you might want. So thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you very much. All right, folks, a quick warning about tonight's show. There are some descriptive moments of archaeological evidence of child sacrifice in the latter part of the show. We will be providing an ample warning before that brief section begins, including about five seconds of silence to give you time to skip past it. Sarah, our esteemed colleague and editor, will pop in with advice on how far ahead you need to skip to avoid hearing it, if that's your wish. So listen for that warning later on in the show. Okay, so here we are with part two of the Nazca mm-hmm. lines. We had a lot of fun in part one, a lot of got a lot of information out there. It seemed to be pretty well received, but we have more to share tonight. We think it's well received because we stopped checking the reviews. <laughs> but we do look at some of the mail and we got interesting pieces for what I think we've now christened as the astonishing mailbag. Oh, yeah. Which just means we got a couple of emails that are relevant to what we just did. Actually, one was about an older show we'll tell you about. But three interesting bits of information I think we could all enjoy as we delve into part two. And uh, we're calling this the Astonishing Mailbag, but don't get used to it because there's not going to be any special animation or music that goes with this, as you might see on some of the late night talk shows in the past, like, uh, like the late show with David Letterman. So the first email we received is from Katie talking about the spider, because we did wonder, as did Professor Eric Klein, people were wondering about some of the biomorphs, uh, the biomorphic geoglyphs that are seen, and those seem to capture the most imagination out of people who view these things because they're most identifiable. You know what a spider looks like. When everyone sees the animals, it's like, I know that, I know that one. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, that's an animal. I get that. You look at the lines and you're just kind of like dumbfounded and drooling, but yeah. you see, it's like, oh, okay, that one's a spider. I get right. it. That one's a spider. I understand. It's identifiable. <laughs> but before we forget to mention this at the end of the show, and I did make a note, is the fact, I believe that people focus too much on these biomorphic designs and that the real mystery are the lines and what Dr. Maria Reika also called runways. Yeah, no. We'll talk about that towards the end. But my point here is that, man, it's really the lines that most people don't pay attention to and don't get the press and don't get the notice. And that's really where the real mystery is. However, getting back to the spider, we wondered why does one uh, line shoot off from a back leg? You know, Professor Klein, of course, he's a, an archaeologist and does a little bit of anthropology and, and he's not a botanist, but he was wondering, is that, well, does that represent the silk? Is that just a, a pathway to get into where you might march in 
align into the design of the spider? Well, Katie said, the right leg of the spider is how it mates, not anything to do with silk. The Rissanulii spider uses its third back leg on the right side to deposit sperm. The Nazca people knew this centuries ago. We just found out in the last decade or two. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, we did not follow up on the uh, veracity of that, but we're going to take Katie's word. The other thing that we noticed, Scott, and you probably saw this message, I think, in Discord, was somebody saying that spiders will often use a back leg, I'm not sure about the species, to arrange their webs. And that's what maybe the uh, the geoglyph was suggesting as a spider creating a web and using its back leg to manipulate the threads. Yeah, and I've actually seen that in action myself with the uh, golden orb. orb, orb weaver, yeah, there's an orb weaver. There, we have those here. They're in North Carolina. They're huge. Well, not huge by like the, what is it in Australia? The No, the, well, huntsman. you're talking about the huntsman. Uh, there's a blue yeah. one that's deadly. Uh, but what? the orb, that thing's beautiful. It's really cool. Looking. It is I cool. Those. I Like I said, though, I do have a bone to pick with it because those are the kind of webs or lines that you will walk into. And it's like walking into a piano wire. Yeah. And it's very <laughs> disconcerting. It's like, oh, ah! it's strong. Yeah. And it's not going away. No. And it's like 15 feet long going to from a place you didn't yeah. expect it. You've also got the concern that this creature with uh, a six inch span is on your shirt trying to get off you or whatever. So exactly. So stay in your own places. Well, let's read the second email. This one came into us from uh, Renee. Yes. She has a background in archaeology and she was not actually responding to the Nazca lines episode. She was responding to the mystery of Puma Punku, specifically part two, which no. uh, came out some time ago, even though they're very much related. They are, but the kismet here, the weird synchronicity uh, or just coincidence is that you and I were working working on the outline for part two together over Zoom, I believe. And this email just came in. I said, did you see that? <laughs> it's like, yeah. again, not talking specifically about that. I hope she's caught up. I think it came in for part one, actually. I think it came in before we released part one of the Nazca series. Mm. She basically sent it, I think, the night before we recorded part one. That's what's really interesting to me, because again, it gets to that whole synchronicity thing. When you read it, you think, oh, well, this is about what we just said. And it's like, no, we haven't said this yet. This is about something we said months ago. That's true. But uh, we probably deserve just the, the same amount of scorn as she's going to lay down here. So why don't you read the email? Well, it's not a lot of scorn, but let's hear Let me read it. Let me read it. Hi, guys. I really enjoy your show, and I've just listened to the most recent episode at work. I'm an archaeologist and a cultural resource technician in Hawaii. I say this with love when I say I felt the depiction of archaeology today was a bit insulting. Again, she's talking <laughs> about our Puma Punku series. Oh, yeah. Yes, there are those stuffy old white guys who are stuck in their ways. My PhD advisor is one of them. But that is not the direction that the discipline is going. We always take written and oral cultural histories, ethnographies, and therefore what are classified as myths and legends and folklore into account. There are so many ancient cultures that still have existing traditions, so archaeology basically has to take in anthropology, mm -hmm. as that is what archaeology is anthropology just looking at the ancient past. Because there aren't always written records, we use whatever evidence we can. And I am a proponent of Occam's razor because, yes, it may be the simplest explanation, but that doesn't mean that we have to understand it. And then she put parenthetically, but also it is still super racist and wrong to think that aliens built anything in ancient times. Thank you for the show. Hope I could share a more specific viewpoint. And then she wrote in her notes, it's all good. I just want to specify <laughs> that I'm not Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. I just work here. Uh. 
And when I write, I never attempt to lay claim to any cultural traditions. You're welcome to email me with any questions or comments. But the first thing I want to point out is that she's responding to us saying the idea that archaeologists may not be paying enough attention to folklore and legends and uh, among the peoples that were present at the time. So I I think that's what she's having a backlash to. Uh, The other thing I want to say was we tried to reach out to her almost seven or eight days ago Mm -hmm. to come on the show and talk about this, but she has not since gotten back to us. I'm sure she's just busy or working. We did want to let folks know that we did invite her to come on and share her viewpoint. Absolutely. And it probably just ended up in her junk drawer here, but uh, yeah, junk drawer, spam. junk, junk, imba- yeah, junk, <laughs> junk folder, excuse me. I'm, I'm junk drawer. Let's start that over. <laughs> I'm sure it just ended up in her junk folder. No harm, no foul. But, uh, and also uh, Puma Punku, she may be way behind, so she may not hear this for months or years. Yeah. No worries though. No, we just had some questions about some interesting concepts and we'd love to talk this out because I think as we said, you know, we love archaeology and as we're going to talk about tonight, and I swear we've talked about this before, but perhaps uh, not because we couldn't find it in our uh, transcripts or outlines, but like the work of A.L. Krober, who is considered the dean of American anthropology, I believe, around the turn of the century and how his work was important in connecting anthropology with archaeology, you know, the human side of it and stories. And and we've talked about this before way back in Gobekli Tepe. There are different types of archaeology and different approaches, post-processional, the way you view it. And it's like getting the feeling of the people that were there and having that be important. And so uh, we respect all of them. I think what we were getting at is that the idea of choosing a camp of thought, let's say, and that I knew this grad student who was about to submit her paper for her doctoral thesis, but she was worried because she had to pick, and this is actually dealt specifically with South American archaeology, what she thought, like what, wh- whose camp are you going to be in? Because that's going to determine how other academic professionals view you. You're going to have to pick a side, you're going to have to pick a battle. And that was disconcerting. It's like, once that's in, it's hard to go back and be friends with everybody and ride that middle line you have to decide uh, what you believe in. And of course, not every scholar agrees, as we'll see tonight. Everybody's got different theories on what these Nazca lines mean. So anyway, that was interesting. Yes, if you ask me personally, I do believe that we're not alone on this earth, as we're starting to see more and more in the news coming out lately, and that there are things flying around that we have no explanation for. Why couldn't that have been the case way back when? I think the correct answer, which I side with academia, is that we just don't know. And so if you have a hard, firm Occam's razor position on any of this, well, that's fine. But you can't say that you know, because from all the studying I've done now for the past four weeks on this, there's a lot we still don't know. And I think it's folly to claim that we do. Uh, So we had one more email, this third one from uh, Brian. Uh, Forrest, do you want to share this one? This one I enjoyed quite a bit because, you know what, in the tone and spirit of the last third, second half of this episode here is a nostalgic one, which as kids got us into the subject, as we said in part one, it's really a lot about the wackiness maybe of the 70s and ideas and concepts that weren't previously considered, or you certainly didn't learn them in school. But you got them on TV, and when you could, you stuck to it, like in search of, which is maybe why we're here in the first place, doing a podcast, is because we developed a lifelong interest, and that got cultivated, and you built on that, and that's where we are now. And this email had a link to a little gem from 1976. So this email comes from Brian, 
And uh, the subject line says, Shatner interview on Nazca Lines, a 1976 documentary. And the doc here on YouTube for all of us to enjoy for free is called Mysteries of the Gods, again from 1976, hosted by Captain James Tiberius Kirk. But also there's a lot of wacky way out theories that were presented on the show that, you know, were woo woo then, and they still are today. However, we've learned a little bit since then. And what I liked about watching this documentary was that there are some things brought up in it that have not been solved satisfactorily. So one point brought up in the email by Brian is about uh, at the 28 minute mark, Dennis William Hawk, one of the founding editors of the Mutual UFO Network's MUFON UFO Journal, describes magnetic rails under the planes and the distance and width of them are described. Now, Scott and I did try to find this mentioned anywhere else. I did not see that in Von Daniken's book. However, he does describe tracks that go up a hill that looks like it, it launches off a little cliff and goes in a three separate directions. And that's what I'm talking about, the lines being uh, mysterious, is that this doesn't seem like a marching procession unless you want to walk off a small cliff. Yeah, right. And it doesn't seem like something easily scraped with your sandaled feet because it's in the hillside. And so, yeah, the other thing is that you really have to see the pictures to understand what we're talking about. It's really hard to explain how complex and intersecting and what these designs actually are until you see them in color. But then in talking about the rails, again, that's one concept that we try to find that perhaps some of these lines were a launching method for some kind of aircraft or spacecraft. And there's a big argument that it may have been terrestrial aircraft of sorts. Not talking about alien spaceships, we're talking about technology that the ancient Nazcans may have known about and utilized on their own, that developed in somehow, in some way, it's gone just forgotten about. Yeah. And if you consider the idea that uh, there was some intricate and sophisticated metalwork done by some of the other peoples and cultures nearby, that's a possibility. But all the biological material, the reeds, whatever, uh, balsa, one element of one of those fun wind-up balsa wood planes you had as a kid with the plastic propeller that was red with the rubber band. Remember those? Yeah. You wind it up? Yeah. Made out of balsa. Where's balsa found? Not too far away near Lake Titicaca. We're going to talk about an aircraft that was fashioned and possibly flown, certainly was in the 70s by the people there, which may have aided in the line's designs. So thank you, Brian, Renee, and Katie for sending those emails in. And now we're going to get to the, the meat of part two, which is basically covering all the theories. Well, first, we're going to start with the non-woo theories, but don't worry, folks. Part two, we bring you the woo. That's our unofficial motto around here. Uh, I don't know. Uh, because that's like the that. fun part of it. Like I said, that's the nostalgic part. That's the stuff you talk about around the campfire. But this other stuff, I guarantee, is going to be fascinating. And that is the archaeological and anthropological aspects of the Nazca lines, because that's what we do know. We're going to talk about what's accepted by, let's say, mainstream academia, and we're also going to do it as a little recap from part one, but introduce a lot of new theories that uh, are all tied in with it. So, Scott, why don't you lead us off here with, uh, I say, theory number one, the archaeoastronomy theory. 
Yeah. So archaeoastronomy, when you think about this term, this is something that you would think about when you regard how a lot of people look at Stonehenge or any other kinds of formations that seem to be aligned to tell you about certain times of year, the winter or summer solstice, or and these are things you would want to know about for agricultural reasons, or there might be ritualistic reasons. And to that end, we did talk in part one about Dr. Paul Koshik, who from June 1941 to 1956 and later, he was in Peru studying pre-Columbian ancient irrigation systems. That was his bread and butter and the thing he was most interested in. And while he was flying over the terrain, trying to figure out what was going on with the Nazca lines, he noticed that the sun was setting and it was setting along one of the lines. And this was in the Southern Hemisphere in late June, around the time of the winter solstice. And Kashuk wonders if the Nazca lines might be part of some astronomical calendar. Kashuk also ties in a ritual or perhaps a processional ritual theory to the astronomical significance. Yes, and I do want to point out here, though, something that uh, is described in uh, Von Donneken's book is what he explains is that when Kashuk was flying, I believe, with the local pilots to get an idea of the irrigation systems, he thinks, or at least Von Donneken claims, that they look like runways out in the middle of nowhere, and he starts to get nervous. And he has the pilot turn back because I think from his point of view, he's like, are we in some kind of military secret area here? Right. Who would be doing this? Why are these lines so straight? It it kind of blew his mind. And then he started to get a little scared. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't be flying over this. Right. So he has a finite amount of time to spend in the country and he needs a partner to work with. So he takes on someone who started out as an assistant to a Maria Rika, who'd been living there for quite some time, who was also very much interested in the lines. Rika, as we said in part one, was a German mathematician, and initially she was living in Lima, but she did move to the Nazca Plain. And she, at this point, is the first person to nearly as completely as she can map out all of the geoglyphs, and she finds enough correlations to the lines and astronomical constellations that she thinks, too, it might be some kind of astronomical calendar. She finds at least 16 lines that point towards a rising or setting sun during a solstice. For example, Dr. Rika finds a line on the spider geoglyph that we were just talking about that points to the Orion constellation. Eight more lines point toward the rising of the Pleiades constellation. And she starts to develop an idea that the many animal geoglyphs may have agricultural connections to the stars as some kind of almanac or calendar. She also believes that they may have been used to predict storms and other climatic events. The rationale is that many ancient cultures pay close attention to the heavens and their environment for signs on the best times to plant and harvest. And there are many examples of what many scholars believe are Neolithic astronomic markers, you could say, that are amazingly accurate. So with a culture that are expert and highly skilled farmers in the regions, such as the Nazca and the Paracas cultures they likely evolved from, it's like marking an X on your geoglyph calendar. And remember, because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, When the Pleiades rises in November, it's time for planting because the water runoff from the mountains on which they depend will soon start flowing. When the Pleiades goes away, it's harvest time. Right. And this leads to another notable name in this research about Nazca and archaeoastronomy. And that is Gerald Hawkins in his work with Stonehenge. Well, other research years later has reinforced this theory for some scholars. In looking at other ancient markings and structures as an example of other cultures using the land and resources around them to make astronomical calculations. So astronomer Gerald Hawkins arrived at this theory with Stonehenge in the 1960s using an early IBM computer. And from using the computer to calculate the positions of the standing stones in relation to the stars, 
Hawkins concluded that Stonehenge was a form of astronomical calendar used by ancient peoples to predict environmental and celestial events. Now, there's a new article that just came out in National Geographic, which I've not yet signed up for. So I, I, I cannot uh, give you a summary on that, but it looked exciting. So there, there may be some new news on Stonehenge, but check your National Geographic website for that. Well, getting back to Stonehenge, and, and I'm talking about a timeline here. So we're talking about the 1960s at this point. Well, in the 60s, this theory became wildly popular, and some say launched a new field of study termed archaeoastronomy. Then in 1968, Gerald Hawkins goes to study the Nazca lines for himself to perform the same type of computer alignment in calculating the lines and mapping them out. So he's using now a similar form of computer matching that he'd done with Stonehenge, where Hawkins compares 72 lines at Nazca with an accompanying 21 triangles with stars and constellations to try and find a correlation. So that's what he's doing basically now using a computer to guide him, which is a little bit revolutionary back then at this point. It's the 60s. It's not like getting out your iPhone and using SkyGuide. Well, Gerald Hawkins' findings were that because the lines are so numerous and often seemingly random to other designs in the geometric category of the geoglyphs constructed over the centuries, well, as we pointed out in part one, that really any connection to significant stars and planets and some kind of astronomical calendar were most likely coincidental. Hello, everyone. I died in 1919. And when I'm not possessing the living, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, let's get back to the show. What I'm wondering about here, because you were talking, Forrest, about the Ancient Apocalypse mm -hmm. series on Netflix with Graham Hancock, is I had seen in one of those episodes where they were adjusting for the change in position right. over the years of where the solstice would come and go. Yes. Not just from the how the night sky shifts, but also the continents. And the, depending mm -hmm. on the time, are you looking at the right point of time? Because they had found there was an, I think it was the island of Malta that has all of these structures on it. And everyone was like, why are these They're pointing in all different directions? But there right. was a researcher, and I can't her name escapes me now, but who figured out that if you go back to the uh, right time periods, each one of these structures was built to align with the right. solstice at that given moment. Right. Which would mean that the construction stretched out over a far broader span than they thought. Now, when you look at uh, Wikipedia and their, as you said, the bent has definitely changed to be very assaultive towards things like Ancient <laughs> Apocalypse series. Mm. It says it's a 2022 documentary series about the pseudo-archaeological conspiracy theories uh -huh. of British writer Graham Hancock. Uh -huh. That's how it introduces right. it. Right. So just completely knocking him down right out of the gate with their description of the series. That one media reviewer, they were saying, and I think it was an article in The Guardian, perhaps, that was saying that the Graham Hancock and this type of series is downright dangerous because the next yeah. thing you know, people will be storming their capital cities. I wonder if it's any more dangerous than the propagation of artificial intelligence that's about to hand out billions of bytes of information to people that's completely false and unchecked. Ah, well. And everyone's going to think because it came from their computer, it's right. Yeah. They're but I, doing I think that. that's a lot more dangerous than what Graham Hancock's doing. But I digress. Well, here's, no, to your point, though, and, and this is interesting because uh, it's also something to consider with Nazca. It's relevant, folks. The episode I watched just last night has to do with the Serpent Mound in Ohio, which I did visit myself. And you go up on that little platform there. It was very brief because we had to check in at the Randolph Infirmary before uh, the guy left for the night. We were doing an all-night ghost investigation. You have to check in before. Uh, he's got to do his little talk, and then you're locked in. It's a lockdown. 
for the evening. So we were in a hurry. So Roger, Jill, and I spent about the same amount of time at the Snake Mound as Clark Griswold did at the Grand Canyon with his family. Right. <laughs> Let's go. Okay. So we did climb up the platform, but you can't see much of it. Just a little tiny section, which looks like a curve, like, well, that's interesting. But when you watch the episode, which that alone is interesting and worthwhile, you see the whole thing in its entirety. And then it's really impressive that because they got a drone in these the ancient peoples. Yeah, that the, these ancient peoples constructed this earthwork. And what it is, it's a giant snake. Now, there's so many trees that obstruct the view, which, uh, according to the Grams, say are just to shade the tourists looking, and I don't think that they let you really roam around. You certainly can't stomp around on the snake. So, not sure what they're talking about here. Kind of have to agree with him. But there's so many trees that obscure it, you can't see all of it. And you see a small bendy part, but it's like, well, like, you know, you could do that nowadays. It's not as impressive. What he was talking about, and I tend to agree with this, is that at the mouth of the snake, which looks to me like it has horns, and that ties in with an Iroquois legend about a, uh, a horned or antlered snake, this snake here looks like its mouth is about to devour another small mound, which I believe, if I got it correctly, used to have standing stones on it. His contention was that this mound and the mouth of the snake line up with a solstice. And to me, it would seem like it's devouring the sun as it sets on the solstice. Right. Or right. maybe the sun is, I can't remember which, maybe the sun is coming out of its mouth. In any case, what he contends is that, okay, it may not line up so much today, but if you roll the calendar back 10,000 years or more to the younger Dryas, then it did. And that is the controversial part here because that screws up the accepted timeline of when these things were built. And we see that with the Nazca lines, again, that it's relevant in that these alternative thinkers and researchers are saying it's much older than what we perceived. And the mainstream is saying, like, no, it's not. Don't do that. Stop that. Right. We don't know that. And so his final thought on it, and I have to agree with this, is that uh, Graham Hancock would say, like, these people were very smart back then who built this. I don't think that they would go to all this trouble and be off a little bit at the end of it. He thinks, right. as I do, they knew what they were doing. and I. Feel that way about Nazca. These aren't accidents. This isn't random graffiti. It may not have an overall arching purpose or meaning or a puzzle that you have to put together, but these folks were smart. They knew what they were doing and they did it with purpose. Right. And to that end, the other thing that I would add is that some of the things that are pointed out in that series, for example, the idea that the structures on Malta align if you shift the calendar or the night sky is that frequently what does happen is I find that in, in things that we've researched mm -hmm. that the current standard of archaeology says, well, this doesn't line up, so that's not what it right. is, which even with the case of Nazca, yeah. when they're like, well, it doesn't really line up. Maria Rico was wrong. Yeah. Sometimes later, new information comes to light, and it's like, oh, wait, it did line up. And we didn't think about this. We didn't think about this mm -hmm. shift or that shift, or we were looking at the wrong time period. So as a result, things weren't lining up like we thought they should. You know, the Dakota ring wasn't exactly in the right position. Right. And then when that happens, all of the theories that came before, they're like, oops, we're wrong. Yeah. While some of the geoglyphs and celestial objects, solar and lunar events, do seem like they might be connected, it's not enough of a connection overall to point to an encompassing theory. Right. This is a conclusion also shared by Dr. Edwin Barnhart, who said in his Wondrium lecture, when we referenced him in part one, what he talks about is there's lots of lines that do line up, but a lot of them don't. Right. It's a big mess. So the azimuth is off, meaning these lines are, are pointing towards the horizon. And there's so many lines. Yeah, some of them line up, 
but a lot of them don't. You can't make a correlation here. The few examples that are there are statistically insignificant when you look at the whole number of the geoglyphs. His point is that some of them might indeed have been put in with a thought of astronomy, but that doesn't explain all of them. Right. And what he's talking about with the azimuth here is where the lines line up with some celestial object at the horizon where they either rise or fall. You know what I'm saying? Either can be comes up at night or goes down. So what he's saying is that, well, that would be significant if uh, it was uh, a lot more lines were lining up. He said there's hundreds of lines that go all over the place to his uh, view and that it's just not statistically significant. Right, it's just a coincidence. There's so many lines that some are lining up almost, it seems like, by coincidence. Right, and, and I would agree. I think it's a very valid point. I, I tend to agree uh, with most all of his thinking here in that if you're looking for an overall theory to the lines, then it doesn't quite cut it. But Rika and Konshuk do agree with Hawkins, but up to a point. They also don't abandon the theory that they're working on because they believe that there are some genuine alignments that were purposely created as astronomical calculations, but those are only part of an overall original purpose for the design. So they'll say, okay, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, maybe that's a stretch for all of them, but we do think there's something here. It may just not solve the entire mystery of the lines. All right, and this is another theory that I'm particularly fond of. I think mm. this is pretty interesting. This has to do with Nazca perhaps being a sort of massive textile manufacturing operation. Right specifically for these elaborate mummy burials that they do. Yeah, the mummy factory, the the <laughs> the, the Burlington Coat and Mummy Factory, or as I call it, yes. the, the weaving loom theory, yeah. So most of us know about the Egyptian practice of mummification from popular culture. However, many might not know that according to some findings, mummification practices in this Peruvian region predate the Egyptians mm -hmm. by maybe as much as 2,000 years originating back, as far as we know, to 7,000 years. And the South American techniques have, in many cases, preserved the mummies much better than the Egyptian techniques. Remember that the initial reason archaeologist Toribio Mejia Zespi was in the Nazca area was that he was with an expedition studying a find of hundreds of mummies yeah. in a huge underground necropolis. I believe specifically mummy bundles, yeah, which yeah. is a little different from the traditional Egyptian laying out like right. you're in a coffin. It's more of a bundle situation. We have uh, some, I think, an image associated with that in part one, but if we don't, we'll add that in part two. Zespi was only 31 years old at the time when he was out hiking and climbed up a hill for a better vantage point and noticed the deliberate designs. He spent the next 13 years or so mostly cataloging and measuring the lines before presenting his findings before a conference of scientists in 1939. Now, one of the reasons the Peruvian mummies are better preserved is that while ancient Egyptians used linen to wrap their dead, the Nazcans used expertly woven cotton, which they grew in abundance, along with wool, in incredibly long threads, with such precision that other cultures found it hard to match, especially back then and even to this day. And the dry climate conditions also helped preserve the Egyptian mummies, but even more so with drier Nazcan desert conditions. In fact, Regarding the impressively tight weaves of the Nazcan textiles, this led to another theory. This theory, however, concerns how the Nazca may have directed line makers on the desert floor from high above. Because the idea that many of these later Nazca designs can only be seen fully or appreciated from a high vantage point, many have wondered just how they were mapped out. Or maybe a VIP, exclusive few, were fortunate enough to see the full designs in their full glory once completed. We don't know. Well, one idea about that, and I know it sounds kind of wacky, at least <laughs> it did if you just say it, but you don't really know how they might have gone about it. 
I'll just say it. It's a hot air balloon. Well, one thing I noticed in our Facebook group was a comment by Matthew G. Alderman, uh, one of our friends there, uh, who said uh, something like when he was in school, that was a theory that was bandied about. Like maybe they used hot air balloons to view the lines from far above and and that's how they directed them or designed them or were able to enjoy them later. Because you wonder about that because a lot of them are not visible, as we've said before, uh, from the floor of the desert. However, there are a bunch more that are on the hillsides. And to the north, there are much earlier ones that they believe were created in the Paracas phase, which are slightly different, but much older. And those are usually on the hillside. So those you can see, uh, you can also climb up a little bit of a, to a vantage point to see some of the lines, but really a hot air balloon would be fantastic. Well, that idea may sound crazy, but it was actually tried by two guys. Well, you know, the common saying is that the Nazca textiles were so tightly woven that you could make a hot air balloon out of them. I think that is a local saying. A lot of the, the local people there now will say like, yeah, they were so good, you know, uh, you can make a hot air balloon. So it's kind of a, a trope there. Well, well, maybe this is how the ancient Nazca directed the creation of the geoglyphs from a high vantage point, perhaps. So some adventurous folks tried to prove that theory was possible. So on November 28, 1975, explorer Jim Woodman and balloonist Julian Knott had a hot air balloon created from textiles in the Nazca technique with a two-person basket made out of the kind of balsa reed boats found up near Lake Titicaca that we talked about uh, just a moment ago, making those little airplanes there. And we also mentioned that, of course, in our Puma Punku series. They attached that to the balloon portion and dubbed the craft Condor One. And they had some really cool designs of, uh, of some of the geoglyphs on the side of the balloon. And they filled it with hot air, and it actually flew. So you could get up high enough to see the designs in full, except there was one unforeseen problem. Woodman and Knott had two ground lines from the balloon to handlers on the ground to guide them. But what no one realized, it seems, at the time, is that once you get high enough over the desert plain, the wind is much stronger than it is at ground level. So once they got up high enough to see, the strong winds had snapped the two lines and the balloon drifted about 120 miles away before they could be picked up which is, uh, that's a little bit of a drive. Get your car and drive 100 miles. The other thing that's nuts about this is like, they didn't have a basket. They had this thing that looked like a giant banana that they <laughs> well, were sitting the, in. That's what and we're they're wearing about. like yeah. evil Knievel helmets. I would, like, yeah. And it, <laughs> it's just, I, that's bold. Hey man, that's it's a bold uh, Come on, man, it's 1975. Yeah, I'm, I'm into it though. You need the flared pants, the elephant bell bottoms with the flares and the evil Knievel, the butterfly collars. And that's, uh, yeah. you're not going to see totally all that in the documentary we talked about uh, earlier, Mysteries of the Gods, but you'll get close. Well, yeah, this is what Professor Barnard says. Uh, it, it seems like an example of how, uh, quote, experimental archaeology can go wrong, close quote. So here's the deal, though. They proved you could make a hot air balloon from the textiles, but also, like Dr. Barnhart says, you could also make the geoglyphs on the ground with some skilled surveying and careful landscaping. But who knows, maybe the ancient Nazca could also enjoy their handiwork from above and maybe for quality control, some QC kind of things. But the other thing I'll say quickly before we uh, get on to the next uh, notable person here is that the straight lines you can understand. If you knew something about surveying and you would need some techniques, and uh, I think one of them maybe is a bowl of water to level. But the other thing is it doesn't really explain the curved lines to me. Yes, they look cartoonish to us, but you tried doing that. That looks really hard to me, like to get that 
So they're not all jagged and janky, you know, yeah. they had a technique for that. Difficult. And the other thing that I'll mention here, because I'm afraid I'm going to forget all this stuff when we get to the end in, in our theories is that yes, uh, Dr. Barnhart would say like, it's easy to map this out on some textiles, you know, you make a blueprint, but I don't believe we've ever found anything that looks like a blueprint, no types of markings. As far as any measurements, right. we've seen artwork that matches some of the geoglyphs or is very similar in theme and content, but I don't believe that anybody has found any textiles. Certainly those things have survived, right? But we don't see any pottery. Right. We don't see any textiles, the two main things that have survived that look like really any, let's say, scratch paper, workspace, working papers, blueprints. Wow, we haven't found that little metal rental trailer with the air conditioner in one window <laughs> where, they, where they have all the plans inside. <laughs> no, we haven't. That's another thing is that where did these people, the workers, live? And why didn't they leave anything behind, really, right. that uh, would indicate that they were had domiciles in the area? Well, uh, that is another thing. And I promised myself and you and the uh, not yet the listeners, but that we wouldn't dive into all this stuff until we got through uh, the more accepted theories. But uh, what the heck, we'll yeah. uh, sprinkle them in here and there because uh, at least it keeps it interesting. So why don't you tell us about our next gentleman here? Henri Stierlin. This goes back to the giant textiles factory yes. theory. In 1983, Swiss journalist, art historian, and author on art and architectural history, Henri Stierlin, who sadly just passed away yeah. uh, in September of last year, he develops a theory on the Nazca lines based on the enormity and quality of the textiles. Stierlin believes because some of the threads wrapping the mummies, and this is hard yeah. to fathom, reportedly can be several miles long, <laughs> maybe even yeah. dozens of miles, yeah. some in a single thread that maybe the Nazca lines were created for this purpose. That blows my mind right there. Yeah. They created, well, carded the wool or, or thread to make a thread that could be miles long. I know it seems easy today to do, and maybe you'd use that on a Nazca and Mel's hole, it just kind of blows me away. But the idea here is that maybe the lines themselves are some kind of a simplicity brand clothing pattern, miles long, if you will. Do you know what I'm talking about? Remember the, uh, you may not know, but your your mom yeah. or grandma would go to the store, whatever the Joann's fabric was back then, and you'd buy a pack, yes. and it would be all the plans to cut out and make a yes, dress I do or remember, clothing. Like the paper, and exactly. they would pin it onto the on that fabric. There you yes, go. Yeah. So anyone out yeah, there remember yeah. having their moms make their clothes at home using those? Mine didn't, but yeah. I know kids who did. You're a big hit at school when you wear something like that. <laughs> the kids that I uh, know, they hated that because it's like uh, other kids know like uh, you didn't buy that anywhere. I did suffer <laughs> some of those. Fakes. I know. But when you're older, though, and you realize how hard that was and that uh, your mom or grandma, who was usually uh, putting these things together, like uh, they were amazing craftspeople that they could follow yeah. a pattern and create a piece of clothing that nowadays you just take for granted. Well, Styrlin, he weaves out this theory, pardon the pun, in a book called Nazca, The Key to the Mystery. And there are copies available, but the ones I've seen are in French. So I'm not sure if it's been translated into English, but I didn't look all that hard either. Well, Styrlin thinks that since the threads are quite long and woven into a single thread for many, if not all the wrappings, that the Nazca would have needed a massive work surface of sorts uh, for the weaving a gigantic loom, if you will, and the ground space to act as a community factory where you get everybody together coordinated and they're all able to chip in and make this stuff 
Well, he notices a connection in that the Nazca geoglyphs are also usually constructed of a single line, some straight, some curvilinear, and the Nazca lines could also start and end from a single point within the design. That's also a notable thing, especially with the, uh, the biomorphs. Well, using the concept that these lines were also considered sacred ritual spaces, the theory here is that the Nazca would weave these long threads, keeping to the sacred geometry of the geometric shapes and working within the wide interior expanses to do the weaving. And then as the threads are created, the weavers would string them along the lines of the animal and biomorph designs in particular. The reason for this, according to Stirling, is that in later Peruvian spiritual beliefs, some animals are thought to provide protection or power to a certain family. For instance, for a fishing family, mm -hmm. the orca design might empower them with abundance and prosperity. Or a hummingbird design or spider could provide luck with fertility to a family. So as an important member of a prestigious family was mummified, the string and wraps used would then be infused with the power of the animal design that family chose as its totem or symbol, so to speak. Very basically, to create the threads, a weaver runs them between two posts or points going back and forth and intertwining the fibers with each pass. And there were wooden stakes or posts found at the end of some of the geoglyph lines. And Dr. Maria Rika had also found holes at endpoints of the mm -hmm. designs that could have served as post yeah. holes. So let's talk about the wooden stakes. <laughs> they, these are not only important to the textiles weaving and the mummifying theory, but also because they can be used to probably date the age of the Nazca lines themselves. Yes, to a degree. Yeah, to a degree. Since the stakes are wooden, the carbon-14 dating process was used to determine the approximate age of the wood. And Dr. Eric Klein says the findings indicate a date range from around 525 current era, plus or minus about 80 years. That places them between about 445 and 605 current era, which he says is a match for the date of the known Nazca presence in the area. Now, Barnhart says the idea that the lines predate the Nazca doesn't hold up, at least for the lines that have been studied where pottery and wooden stakes were found. And that's an important uh, thing to consider because not all the lines were checked and not all the lines had wooden stakes. There are just uh, a few stakes found and a few holes found. And so the people who uh, have alternative ideas would say, well, then you could date some of the lines. But I believe Von Danigan says that about a fourth of the lines either could not be dated because there was no material found, which is interesting because people have to live there or at least visit in the day during the workday. And they need food and water because it gets very hot and windy out there. It's just terrible on the skin. You need a lot of moisturizer and a little bit of shelter. So we don't find any of that in some of these lines. In fact, uh, some of the ones that had datable materials like shards of pottery or wooden stakes, they either had none, like I said, which is odd because some did and some did not. And you would think that they would all require the same amount of effort in the same manner, technique, to make all the lines. So something should be found at, at each of them over the hundreds of years they were made. But there isn't. The other odd thing is that uh, some of the shards, they did find some, but they were just too uh, mangled to date properly. So there you go. The point being is that you didn't calculate all of them. Maybe, maybe that is the matching date for all of them. Maybe not. Maybe there are some that are much older that have yet to be discovered and artifacts with them that would prove that. Dr. Barner would uh, state that, you know, a lot of the pottery shards have been found in and around the lines, and they are of Nazca origin, most of it dating to around the same time. So we're talking about 400 to 600 current era here. But some of it is common wear, and some of it is the more fancy polychrome pottery, but definitely Nazca. 
So his contention is that there hasn't been anything found that's really old around the lines that weren't Nazca made. And these things are contemporary with their settlement. So it kind of lines up to his point in that uh, you didn't find something that was really, really old. He also believes this is evidence that the lines do not predate the Nazca culture, as some have postulated, at least for the lines that have been studied. And uh, like as we said, where stakes and pottery were found. So maybe some are older than the Nazca people. We'll see about that later, maybe years later. And I mean, I'm talking about discoveries, not years later as uh, yeah. you grind on with part two here. But he also thinks that the stakes were more likely used for surveying purposes and mapping out and creating the lines, not so much for weaving. Because for surveying, as he said, you just need two people with two stakes and a long string or rope, and then you can make a straight line. You just draw out a plan or design on a map. But again, I would love to see a discovery of one of those plans, just because I'm curious to know what their steps were, what their techniques were. But again, you, you also see some designs uh, which are found on the textiles and they are similar to the geoglyphs. Well, getting back to Henri Stirlin and his textiles theory, Stirlin goes through the measurements of the few mummies that have been unwrapped for scientific study and finds something interesting. Some of the wrappings are measured at up to 400 feet long and 20 feet wide. Yeah. And Stirling believes that some of the wrappings are the same length as some of the Nazca lines, mm. a possible connection between the two, seeing as how the length of a Nazca geoglyph single line could have been the measurement for a single mummy rabbit. That is interesting, yeah. Another interesting find by Stirling was that he also noticed that many of the designs on the mummy cloth strips were similar to the Nazca geoglyphs. His assessment was that there was a connection from the ritual weaving process on and inside the glyphs to the mummification wrapping process. Now, the Nazca mummification process was painstaking and elaborate for something that was for a hidden afterlife. Stearman learned that one main panel of a mummy shroud might contain a million stitches or more, and the borders could be composed of 800,000 additional stitches. This seemed to him like something sacred and important enough to involve a significant amount of priests, community members, or ritual workers. He theorized that since the land took some effort to grow anything, mm -hmm. and cotton was one of their most valuable and successful crops that could be grown in the arid soil, large-scale cotton and textile production may have become a sort of industry and trading commodity for the Nazca, serving the whole Andean region, coastal and inland. It could have helped the society survive when agricultural yield was low. But keep in mind, the textile hypothesis is just stealing speculation. Right. Because we don't know for sure that the wooden stakes at the ends of the geographs were used for that. We have no idea. Exactly. Well, here are two other notable names in the Nazca game. You're going to hear about this gentleman later. But his uh, cohort here uh, was just as significant in the research for Nazca, and that's Giuseppe Orofici and Helene Silverman and what they discovered at the Kawachi Chambers. Because, however, talking about the previous theory, uh, from 1984 on, Italian archaeologist Giuseppe Orofici, a, a quick shout out to Orfeo Angelucci, because Orofici reminds me of Orfeo, and uh, we love yes, Orfeo. Our good old <laughs> Well, Giuseppe Orofici is working with American archaeologist Elaine Silverman on the excavation of Kawachi, which we were talking about in part one, remember? And the team made some findings and discoveries just two years after Henri Stierlin published his book with his theories. And this is the, something I'll point out now, and we'll talk about this later. Like, these are constant discoveries throughout the decades, throughout the years that are happening, right up until last December. I'm talking about 2022. Yeah. That keeps it fresh and exciting. 
Well, only about two miles from the Nazca lines, Orofici and Silverman discovered numerous chambers containing weaving items and believe the chambers were used for large-scale textile manufacturing. And in 1988, Helene Silverman publishes their findings in the Journal of Field Archaeology and, and claim that Kawachi was the manufacturing center for the burial shrouds of the prominent Nazcans and their elaborate garments worn by the priests or shamans and or ritual performers. Now, this would indicate that these chambers at Kawachi, where the weaving and looming and mummification practices took place, and not so much on the desert floor where the lines were laid. So that, that's a difference. But this doesn't rule out an aspect of Stirling's theory that the Nazca lines were somehow connected to the processing of mummies and textiles. Kawachi, positioned higher up on the plateau, could have been a religious pilgrimage site where mourners and celebrants could have gathered for something like a funeral, as we would imagine, while looking down below at the geoglyphs uh, for some kind of spiritual connection to the symbols or the textiles used and inspiration for the rites performed. It would have been quite a sight to have been at this higher location. The muses. Well, just looking, yeah. I love looking out at, uh, I love being on bluffs and looking out at uh, valleys below. I once did that in LA. I, I watched Malibu burn from Loyola Ooh, Marymount yeah. University. So that was, yeah. No, there's something about it, especially when it's a, uh, look, you can go up to Griffith Park and look out over the city and it's cool. It's a cool view, but there's something also about it when there's nothing around, what's more deserty and you have a high yeah. vantage point, and it looks like you could just see forever. Well, that must yeah. have been quite a sight, but it also connects with the next theory, which is? The pilgrimage paths, or the, the processional idea. Right. So the textiles and mummy factory theory somewhat ties in with the idea that the Nazca lines were part of some kind of ritual procession pathways mm -hmm. or pilgrimage paths for celebrants. And this theory makes the most sense to Professor Barnhart and us as well, if you're going to do a non-woo theory. <laughs> well, if, you, if you have to. If you have this to. This one comes up a lot. And the idea of people using these as paths or directions or walking along these lines makes a lot of sense. It, it fits in with a lot of these other theories, you know what I'm saying, as, as part of it. So uh, right. it seems logical, but there may be some interesting questions, which is, again, this is why we do this in part two with the theories is that uh, it may not answer everything, but it's what we got. Barnhart's summations, again, are that over hundreds of years, individual groups of Nazca culture have made their own types of geoglyphs and yeah. somewhat disrespectfully <laughs> laid them over older sets of designs once those lines had served their purpose for the older generations. This would account for a lot of the crisscrossing and overlapping we see today. You know, and I would just interject that we see this all the time with what little like armchair oh, yeah. <laughs> internet archaeology experts that we are not. Mm. But one thing that we've discovered when we've covered uh, Pumapunku right. and Tiwanaku and uh, these other sites is that they're always on top of an older site every single time. And a lot of times when they get the GPR yeah. out there, whether they're in Nan Madal or these other places, there's a thing under the thing, under the thing, under the That's thing. That's true. So it's, there's a, a long tradition of things being laid on top of things because the next generation needs it to be useful in a different way than it was to the prior generation. But yes. it's sacred ground, and you don't want to destroy what was already there, but you, you want to do your own thing now. There's lots of pottery and shards that have been found there, but about 70% of it is that fancier polychrome pottery, and about 30% of the more plain, domestic, everyday-use pottery. Right. Now, pottery seems to be coming to Kawachi yeah. from all over the region rather than originating there. Also at Kawachi, offerings of textiles and food were found, along with big piles of more decorative shells right. rather than shells from meals. 
and Kawachi is a good distance away from the coast. So the fact that Kawachi appears to have not been a site where people were eating, working, and living their daily lives for long periods of time, but rather coming there for rituals, connects to the ritual pilgrimage concept. Right, right. Now, the pottery shards found on and around the line show that people were tromping around them back in the day, but the pottery was perhaps used more for offerings, like at Kawachi, than for daily living on the Pampa. As Dr. Barnhart says, quote, pilgrimage is known as a practice from Kawachi, and it's proof of Nazca pilgrimages. So if they're making these lines as part of a pilgrimage, and they're kind of an offering for water or crops or fertility, who or what are they imploring to? That's the big question. And he goes on to say, in another highland plateau in the Palpa Valley, there are sets of other little-known lines which may lead to an idea of who or what they were imploring to, because there is a geoglyph in the form of the fanged deity, mm-hmm. who we mentioned before in part right. one. This fanged deity of the Palpa may be the same one the Nazca people were imploring for the blessings just mentioned. Well, personally for me, it's that is the big uh, mysterious question, as you <laughs> You'll see who are these gods? Who are these people? Because we don't know a lot about them. There's no written history yet. And so uh, what Dr. Barnhart's saying is that what comes up a lot is this fang deity. Sometimes the shaman are dressed as jaguars. That's pretty common. But you don't know who these crazy, fearsome characters are that keep showing up in their art. It's still a bit of a mystery, and they didn't write out a name. Think about that. Right. It's not like you label it like, oh, that's Superman with uh, crypto. Yeah, the dog. That's who the dog is. He, right. He, oh, I get that. Okay, so he was a super being, could do all that. He had a cape. And then there's this uh, dog with laser vision. And that's what's going on here. It's part of this whole mythos. It's like, you don't get any of that. You get one image of a fang deity, and he's holding a little tiny head uh, as a trophy head. And that's it. And you have to put these pieces together. Well, that leads us actually to our next theory where pieces are starting to be looked at again and quite recently and more knowledge is coming together. This is why Nazca to me is fascinating. I think it's the mystery that keeps on giving. Yeah, this is just in 2019, folks. A team of Japanese researchers took a new approach to figuring out what the biomorph designs, that is the geoglyphs that resemble living organisms, dog, monkey, bird, spider, etc., were actually representing or suggesting. What species were these animals? For most of the history of research on the Nazca geoglyphs, researchers didn't consider them to be anything more than just a general suggestion of those types of animals. It's just a monkey or a bird. But what type of bird or monkey is it supposed to be? I think it's a valid question. Indeed. It's something they should have looked at way before (laughs) 2019. No, no, Uh, okay, okay, quickly here, a little aside. That's also uh, part of the human problem is that we just accept things and we, we move on, but we don't ask further questions. And again, that's nobody's fault. I think that's just way it's like, well, there you go. It's accepted. Let's move on. Let's study this other thing that we don't know about. But let's back up here. It's like looking for your keys that are lost and you think you check the couch and you move on. But guess what? They were under the throw pillow on the couch. You didn't look deep enough. You moved on. You thought it was done. But no, that's where the answer lies. No, that's a good point. You look at this and you think, okay, well, we've that angle's solved. Let's do this and that and the other. Yeah. It's like, well, let's go back and take a look at that again. Well, they found that the birds were the animals that were most repeatedly drawn as biomorphic geoglyphs and that the specific species of birds were not exactly native to the Nazca Desert habitat. Mm-hmm. The birds were the types to be found in wetter climates, probably much more inland towards the Amazonian region or at the coastline. So why were the Nazcans drawing birds not found where they lived? 
The team speculated that the reason has to do with the purpose of the geoglyphs themselves. Here's an excerpt from the Smithsonian Magazine article titled, Scientists Identify Exotic Birds Depicted in Peru's Mysterious Nazca Lines, written by Melan Sali, uh, subtitled, The researchers argue that the non-native bird's presence must be closely related to the etching's overall purpose. This was published on June 21st of 2019. Sali writes, In a study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, Masaka Eda of the Hokkaido University Museum, Takeshi Yamasaki of Yamashina Institute for Ornithology, and Masato Sakai of Yamagata University report that many of the birds depicted in the geoglyphs were previously misidentified. Eda states in a press release that many of the birds seen in the lines are found in regions far away from Peru's desert plains, and it's possible the drawing's creators encountered these exotic birds while gathering food on mm -hmm. the coast. Quote, if exotic non-local birds were not significant for the Nazca people, there would be no reason to draw their geoglyph, Ada tells Newsweek's Hannah Osborne. So their existence should be closely related to the purpose of etching geoglyphs, but the reason is difficult to answer, end quote. Mm -hmm. To better gauge the birds' identities, Ada and his colleagues took a closer look at each figure's morphological traits, including beaks, heads, necks, bodies, wings, tails, and feet. Next, Sarah Sloat reports for Inverse, the team compared these observations with more than 2,000 scientific drawings of native Peruvian bird species. As of the date of this article, the team reclassified three of the 16 geoglyphs studied. For example, Melan Sali cites an article in Live Science by Stephanie Pappas as stating the generalized hummingbird glyph is actually a subgroup of hummingbirds known as a hermit which lives in the forested regions of northern and eastern Peru rather than the southern desert of the Nazca Lines. Kiona N. Smith's Ars Technica article states that the hermit hummingbird was identified based on its three-pointed toes, right. long, thin beak, and elongated tail feathers. For comparison, most hummingbirds have forked or fan-shaped tails. A second, newly reclassified geoglyph, which was previously described as just a bird, is now believed to be a representation of a pelican found on the coast. A third reconsidered geoglyph, previously thought to be a coastal-dwelling guano bird, now seems to also represent a pelican. Right. Kiona and Smith also writes that the researchers were unable to identify all 16 of the birds because some, like the condor and flamingo, had morphological traits that didn't square with their previous classifications, nor were they accurate with that of any living species native to Peru. So there's the possibility that some drawings were either inaccurate or they represent the extinct lineages of their species. And previously unnoticed geoglyphs are continually being discovered. In 2011, a Japanese team from Yamagata University found two new small figures, one that's like a human head from the early Nazca culture or earlier, and another presently unidentified animal. Yeah. By 2012, that team had discovered around 100 new geoglyphs. As recently as 2019, the team from Yamagata University and IBM Japan discovered 143 previously unknown geoglyphs on the Nazca Plain and surrounding region, one of which was found using machine learning. So as AI develops, we might be in for some even more astonishing new discoveries. Right. As AI and machine learning develops, imagine all the amazing discoveries that are going to happen with everything. It's going to change everything that we yeah. do. I, this is my point earlier. There are glyphs and discoveries and mysteries being discovered up to this minute. And I'm talking about last December and uh, are going to happen this year that we'll know about later because they'll come out in reports. Uh, so uh, there are all kinds of mysteries 
And as a quick note, again, not a, as a continually running plug for that show, but when you look at the more recent 4K gorgeous images of Gobekli Tepe in uh, Ancient Apocalypse, uh, what's happened since we even covered it, what, two, three years ago, is amazing. A lot more has been cleared out. But what's even more astounding is that there, what is there, like 60 new structures identified with ground penetrating radar that they have yet to explore. And uh, yeah. what are they going to find then? We don't know until they do it. So that's, that's right. always been my thing. It's like they can't hurry this stuff. It has to be careful, painstaking work. But man, I wish they would hurry. I'm Nicola, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. But here's what we know about the next big theory, the water theory. Well, this one theory that could be surmised from the Japanese findings is that the geoglyphs are connected to the religious complex at Kawachi and the coastal or more jungle-like animals and the appeal or prayers for rain from the gods. So one finding is that, as we mentioned, there are aquifers throughout the desert plain, but most of the water is underground. However, right at the site of Kawachi, the, the river runs through it, and it pops up on the surface of the higher ground there. So that's significant. One interpretation of the Japanese findings is that some of the Nazca lines lead a path to Kawachi or vice versa, and the pilgrimage or processional routes could be part of the rituals with these water-associated birds and, and other animals to bring needed rain to the hills adjacent to their planting fields. You know what I'm saying? It's like that's all... Uh, Location, location, location. It's all part of it. And that's why they're imploring water birds or using water birds to uh, get the attention of, of the deities. So the pilgrimage and processions might be imploring or paying tributes to the gods for the rain needed to survive, which is a custom as old as people and gods everywhere. Well, the Japanese researchers also identified water associated birds on Nazca ceramics, uh, rock art, textiles, musical instruments possibly reinforcing the theory that the processions were tied to imploring the gods for water. So remember when we talked about the inaccurate number of fingers or toes on some of the biomorphs? Yes. Well, uh, here's one theory, and I'm, I'm not sure if, I, uh, if I'm going with this one. What do I know? Look, <laughs> just I can only go with what makes sense to me. Well, one theory goes that these weren't mistakes. I do believe that or artistic license, but that there was an ancient belief that thunder and lightning caused birth defects in children, and perhaps depicting animals with such defects could be beneficial in rainmaking. So that's uh, why that was done on purpose. The other one I think we've talked about, especially with textiles, uh, you know, there's that old uh, the legend that uh, I think the, the Persian rugs that are so gorgeous and so uh, just detailed and intricate in their weaving and using such uh, craftsmanship, well, the rug makers would leave in an imperfection in the design or the making so as not to affront God with trying to approach perfection, which only God can bring. Oh, right. So that's, right. yeah, so you leave in a little mistake. And I've, that, that translates to a lot of other artwork. It's like, it's, it's a little Easter egg. Uh, you're trying to be humble. But in this case here, with the, with the fingers, there is another thing that we should be sure to talk about towards the end, if we haven't in part one, is that there is the legend of Veracocha, and as that deity is drawn and remembered by the ancient peoples in their myths and legends. I believe he only had four digits. And I'm not making a connection here. You folks can, but uh, that's often described in a lot of alien sightings that they have three or four 
fingers, and usually just four, I've heard. Yeah, and Viracocha also came down from the sky in a golden boat. Uh, yes, as we oh, we did say this, I think, in part one, uh, specifically, I think, or pointedly from the Milky Way region. The far end of the Milky Way or something. Yeah, be, right, just through it, by it. You know, of course, that is a very significant-looking part of the sky, but the other idea about the archaeoastronomy angle is that maybe it's not the constellations if they don't match up, but they're also, I believe, like the Australian Aboriginal peoples, mapping the dark spaces between the stars, not so much the stars themselves. They are looking at the negative of that, and that the shapes and uh, that are formed where there are no stars are more significant to them, or that's what they're mapping, and maybe that's what's happening here, if it's not lining up. Well, the other thing about Viracocha, and again, if you don't like that idea, you can take it up with the local peoples there and their ancestors and their current shamans, and I'm talking about current as of this moment, and what they believe is that Viracocha was a bearded god, which seems a little unusual. And he also had a cone-shaped yeah. head. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there may be some anthropologists and archaeologists who would disagree with that depiction or that that's not Viracocha, that's somebody else. But that's what I read. So, <laughs> and they, you yeah. know, the Paragas peoples, they did practice head elongation, as we talked about in part one. Why was that so important to them? To possibly, as uh, Dr. Barnhart said, to the point of brain damage, maybe. Or maybe just painful the discomfort for many years until that gets shaped. Were they imitating the deities that they worshipped? Were they imitating visitors? Or did they just think it looked cool? I'm not being facetious. I think that's those are your three options, is that it's just a design thing. Yeah. Or they were paying tribute, or they thought it was important to emulate somebody else. And again, it could be part of their mythological creation myths, or their spiritual deities, or something was important to do that. It's not just putting on a pair of earrings. Well, as we previously mentioned, seafood was not a significant part of the Nazca diet, but apparently at a few rock altars near clearings adjacent to the lines, there was evidence of shells of mollusks, crawfish, claws, crab shells, which to me sound more like offerings associated with water than remnants of lunch. Once again, it's quite a ways from the coast and at around 4,000 feet above sea level, so it would seem like a conscious and concerted effort to bring these sea creatures all that way before they spoiled as food. They probably had something like that traveling lobster tank. It's important to them, especially we're going to talk about uh, later the spondylus shells. Remember that we talked about in Puma Punku. It was important to them. Those folks are more in, near the Lake Titicaca, Bolivia region. These people are some distance away, but it's important in the whole region. Apparently, the spondylus shells are worthy as an offering to the gods. Archaeologist Johann Reinhardt proposed in his book, The Nazca Lines, A New Perspective on Their Origin and Meanings, published in 1986, the idea that the lines led Nazcans to sites where they could perform rituals to obtain water and ensure the fertility of their crops. His data supported the belief that the Nazca religion was heavily influenced by the worship of mountains and water sources and was a major factor that guided their economy as well. Reinhardt's theory is based on the idea that the lines were used as sacred pathways that led practitioners to spots where deities that were responsible for the availability of water could be implored for successful harvest. Specific biomorph designs were created to summon the help of their gods that could bring life-giving water. And that idea makes me wonder if they were akin or acted to something like a sigil. You know what I'm saying? Where the design itself yeah. has power, or they thought so. Right. 
that uh, if you create this design large enough, especially like what, you know, everything bigger has got more power to it, a bigger antenna, it's a better signal that they create yeah. this larger design and that design itself has power in it as an icon. A sigil, like the one we saw on the floor in the basement of the Sally House. Uh, yes, but that was created... We hadn't said Sally House in a while, so I just... Yeah, I am a little parched, <laughs> except uh, I'm not going to get out the flask right now. So let's just, let's just okay. press on talking about water. Yeah. Let's talk about drought and David Johnson, because some researchers say there are indications that a devastating drought occurred sometime between, let's say, the beginning of the 5th century CE... Continuing on, and according to some, Kawachi appears to have been abandoned by this time. But human remains and various artifacts would suggest that some of the indigenous people were still visiting the lines. Uh, that's another thing brought up that's a question. It's like, where's the trampling? If there's a lot of people, and I wondered about this in part one, some of these lines are not that narrow, and I'm talking like one foot in front of the other. They're saying, and I, I couldn't understand how they could be seen from so far up if they're only six inches wide. I will admit that I'm missing something there. Well, the other thing is if they are processional paths, is everybody drawing inside the lines? Are they all walking inside the lines, not trampling stuff? What about people getting to the lines? themselves. What about the workers creating that? Where are all the footprints, as von Daniken says? And again, I, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. Maybe there's some natural reason why they could cover those up or you don't see them. But he will also say, like those mysterious big footprints out in the middle of a fresh snowfall by themselves, is that some of these designs don't have pathways to get to them. Some of these yeah. are just out in the middle of nowhere, and with the number of people that you would need to create that, let's say just 50, let's say 100, whatever, you're going to get some tromping to get there. Yeah. It's the same thing with crop circles. People just didn't parachute from the sky to fake those. They had to walk to them to make them. And people right. can be good at covering their tracks, but here it's like it's still a mystery that endures, I think. Well, getting back to the water here in the drought, American scientist David Johnson travels to the Nazca Lines in 1996 and gets introduced to the Pukios, those groundwater channels, and they're uh, connected ojos, the eyes of the channel, that, uh, those cool little things that kind of spiral down to where the well is that you can access the water. And those are the access points to the aquifers that we talked about in part one. Well, the locals tell Johnson what they are and state that they believe they date back to at least the massive drought, possibly sometime in the 6th century. So then he starts to wonder if the Pukios are connected to the geoglyphs and develops a theory that after the drought, the Nazca repurposed the lines to create a massive water resource map. Now, this is interesting. So what Johnson surmises is that from the two main water sources from the region, and that is the water that flows into underground aquifers from the mountain river runoff, and the water that's brought up from seismic fault lines running north to south that source from the water table deep underground. Many ancient settlements are founded near these faults, and a pukio was fabricated to tap their water. Johnson thinks that perhaps the geometric geoglyphs were later created to map, mark, and remember these water access mm -hmm. points. It's like maybe after the gods turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the Nazca pleas for reliable rainfall, they start to rely on their own labor and brain power to control their environment and subsistence. With the Pukios and Ojos, they have a year-round water supply for their crops and themselves. 
For four years between 1996 and 2000, David Johnson teams up with archaeologist Donald Prue and hydrologist Stephen Maybe, and they form the Nazca Lines project to test Johnson's theory. The team maps several fault lines to see if they line up with any geoglyphs and find that with the ones they study, most do line up with Nazca Lines, which also chart where fault lines cross nearby ridges. Mm -hmm. These maps of underground water channels are found with geometric shapes, according to Johnson, and the biomorph or animal designs may have been repurposed to name the various waterways or mark where the direction of the aquifer changes course. Right. right. So what does Professor Edwin Barnhart think about the lines being used Mm -hmm. or repurposed to detect subsurface aquifers and tell 6th century Nazcans where to make their pukios? Dr. Barnhart notes that it was more so the trapezoidal geoglyphs that were studied as water maps and that the shape of them pointing to water sources seemed in the end to be statistically random. As he says, quote, intensive studies from 2000 to 2003 didn't prove this up. Johnson was right in that some of them were pointing to aquifers, but there were many more that weren't. So even if some of them are, it doesn't explain all of the lines, end quote. This, by the way, this seems to be a repeating theme, whether it's astronomy or the Pukios and the water or whatever. It's like some things work and some don't. Is that just because there's so many lines and shapes that, yeah, sure, it lines up with stuff if you look at stuff. (laughs) Well, I agree with everybody who's been there and taken a a deep look at them, as as both these uh, gentlemen have. It's a mess. It's hard to decipher. That's what's mind-boggling, too, is, I mean, there's definitely hundreds. Are there thousands? They keep finding more. It's like, where does it end? And what do they all mean? Here's the dreaded thing that no archaeologist wants to face. What if there's no logic to it whatsoever? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) what if it's like, you know, you take a bunch of drugs and you go out and you do, I mean, I I don't know. I guess you couldn't create something so large and precise. If you were uh, tripping on something, <laughs> as the story goes, you need a, a designated driver. So somebody's got to be mapping this yeah. out or everybody's just kind of staring at clouds in the sky and, and picking out their favorite right, shapes. Right. The, the idea here, though, is that what everybody says, regardless of your, your POV, is that it was a tremendous amount of effort. It was coordinated. Some say not that impossible, just took a lot of action and, and coordinated action. So you have people out there for quite a while that you need to feed and provide water to and some shelter. Again, it gets very windy. The whole idea about the harsh environment down there, which is why they went to the lengths they did to implore the deities for uh, life-giving water, is all part of this, is that it's a harsh environment. You just don't get by without imploring to somebody uh, or something. Right. The idea is that you're going to need some extra help. And for a while, it seems like they were helping themselves, perhaps, when the, as, as you said, the, the God's ears fell deaf. So water's drying yeah. up. What are we going to do? Well, here is another theory that kind of ties into this. But again, I, I think overall, everyone's hoping for an explanation that includes an overall encompassing and comprehensive theory about the mystery of the lines. But there have been theories that break down the purpose of the lines into a few categories. I'll I'll briefly mention this gentleman. In 1977, Alberto Rossell Castro, in his Archaeologia Sur de Peru, Lima, Editorial Universo, came up with a theory that the geoglyphs had a multifunctional purpose. He grouped the designs into three categories. The first group was concerned with irrigation and field division. Group two are designs that serve as axes or like Cartesian coordinate systems that correlate to mounds and cairns. And group three was for astronomical calculations. So I kind of like that idea in that 
it's not all just single purpose. Uh, you have different lines that mean different things. And of course, that's not a new uh, nowadays or, or novel idea. But I think what's happening here is that when somebody says like, this explains everything, and it kind of doesn't because you can point to many more examples where it doesn't really fit the bill. That's what the debate is going on here. And, and I don't think everybody's really saying that this is the entire mystery of it. But still, we just don't know overall what they really meant. But it meant something. Well, the last theory here is the most dramatic that we've saved for last. Because for our last and most dramatic of the non-move theories, we present to you the ritual battle theory. And that's not official. It's just what I call it. Yeah, folks, so we're not quite to the section that we warned you about at the top of the show. We will give you uh, ample warning before we get to that, uh, even though there is some gore here. All of ancient history is pretty gory and upsetting and atrocious. That's yes. how people behaved, yeah. and they still do. In this case, it's a uh, we're much removed from these types of actions, so it may be hard to understand what they were doing. I certainly don't agree with all of it, but this is history. It's what happened. And we have proof of this. And I believe it's important to know what ancient peoples did and why they did it, perhaps, and, and wonder about that. And what was their reasoning? Why did they think this was okay? What were they trying to achieve? And look, our motto here is the truth no matter where it leads. Well, this section starts off with what Scott might call a bookend or a callback, as they say in TV writing, right? They, uh, you start off with something mentioned at the beginning. Now we're mentioning it towards the end. And that is the contributions and discovery of an anthropology rock star. And that is Albert Lewis Krober. Albert Lewis Krober, who I believe, again, <laughs> we've mentioned on the show before, I, I'm having my own Mandela moment here. Yeah, uh, I couldn't I find we him couldn't in find the transcripts. It. And I don't remember him either. Okay, well, uh, that's... No offense. Uh, no, none taken. I'm just yeah. off on my own uh, parallel reality where I did say it and maybe even did a whole show on it. Well, he was born in 1876, and he died in 1960, and A.L. Krober was an American cultural anthropologist, but also did a lot of remarkable work in the fields of archaeology and anthropological linguistics, and is credited for establishing academic ties between culture and archaeology, which is part of what Rene's email was about, that, that taking a look at the necessary element of archaeology, which is the culture behind it, because uh, you can't really separate the two. Well, Krober's work with excavations included digs in Mexico, New Mexico, and Peru, where he helped found the Institute for Andean Studies with Peruvian anthropologist Julio Citeo, among others. Remember him? You uh, you talked about him. Oh, yes, one. I did. Yeah. yeah, the father of Peruvian. Exactly. Archaeology. It all's connected here. Well, Krober was known during his lifetime as the Dean of American Anthropologists. A.L. Krober received the first doctorate in anthropology awarded by Columbia University in 1901. He was also the first professor appointed to the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. One of Krober's best-known achievements might be his friendship and study of a gentleman named Ishii, the last known member of the California Native American Yahi people. And I swear we've, we've mentioned this story before. But you know what? We, we may have not have talked about it on the air, but I think you and I, I think you and I discussed this. Yeah, I feel like that we've talked about that we've talked about, but it may not have been on the air or it could have been one of your long rambles that I told Sarah to cut. Uh. <laughs> this is also true. Just uh, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, 90 minutes of research I did all for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Down the tubes. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> hey, I, I trust others to, uh, I freely give you both rain to make me less boring. That is fascinating stuff. This is staying. It is. Stuff. Well, no, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a sad but remarkable story in that, yeah, he was the last member of his tribe. As the story goes here, he wandered out from a barn and corral in downtown Oroville, California in 1911. He was aged 50. And also how he got his name is fascinating to me because it's not only cultural, but, uh, but also kind of sad, as I said. Apparently, the story goes is that when Alfred Krober found him and somehow he made his way to these uh, anthropologists at Berkeley, they asked him, yeah, what is your name? What do people call you? And he said, I have none because there were no people to name me. So in Yahi culture, tradition demanded that he not speak his own name until formally introduced by another Yahi. So there was no one to introduce him to Alfred Krober, so he could not tell them his real name. That's just their custom, and he stuck to it. So Alfred Krober said, uh, well, in the Yana language, uh, which he was studying these languages, Ishi just means man, so I will just call you man. Yeah, and and importantly, the reason that he was the last one is because his entire uh, tribe was wiped out yeah. in a genocidal attack by uh, cowboys. Yeah, again, uh, history is loaded with atrocities and, and awful behavior. And yeah. this is another case of that, the same thing with the Chinese. Uh, it just, it goes on, and this has happened in the West as well. But on a more lighthearted note, Albert Lewis Krober is also known for another achievement our listeners who love to read science fiction and speculative fiction might find interesting. He was the father of acclaimed novelist, short story writer, and poet Ursula K. Le Guin, the K standing for Krober. Now, I know we've mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin before on the show, but we could also not find any mention of that, so... I just, yeah. Uh, again, you folks out there, if that could uh, be in remember, the, the early transcripts are done by uh, AI. That's and true. Things are misspelled, and that that was might be a hard one for it to have spelled right, and so the search doesn't always. There work. you go. That's why you don't want it yet running your life. I don't need any suggestions on what else to watch, or other people bought this. You might also like this. No, thank you. I will make those decisions yeah. myself. My point being here is that uh, people have emailed us uh, talking about the works of Ursula K. Le Guin and uh, love her work and uh, she's a giant powerhouse in science fiction as, as i know her so the daughters of lions are lions themselves well in 1925 or 1926 and i've read two academic accounts mentioning both dates maybe not that it's important but 1925 so it's, it was a while ago that this has been known albert lewis krober discovered a collection of what was then thought of as trophy heads in the nazca region Reading from an article titled Trophy Heads, Gruesome Practices from the Nazca Civilization by Catherine Hadley and originally published 20th of January 2009. The heads and their now perceived significance are described thusly. And Scott, if, would you read this? The lips of the heads were sewn together with cactus spines and all the heads featured a hole in the center of the forehead through which a carrying rope was inserted. Their meaning has remained a myth, however, for the past 100 years. Were they war trophies? Were they the heads of venerated ancestors, which bore a religious significance and were used in rituals or offerings? Recent research has revealed the geographical origins of the trophy heads, providing new clues as to their significance. Archaeologists compared strontium, oxygen, and carbon isotope data found in the tooth enamel of 16 of the trophy heads, originally discovered in 1925 and currently held at the Chicago Field Museum of Natural History, with that from 13 mummified bodies buried in the Nazca region. The atomic structures of strontium, oxygen, and carbon vary by geographical location, thus reflecting where the person lived and his or her diet. 
The results of the study, published online on December 11th in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, concluded that the trophy heads did not come from a distinct geographical region and that the individuals in the study consumed similar diets. The trophy heads came from the local Nazca population, rather than from a neighboring enemy civilization, thus hinting that they may have been used in rituals. Widespread depictions of trophy heads on painted pottery from the late Nazca period suggest that collecting and displaying trophy heads was a relatively common practice amongst the Nazca civilization. Nevertheless, researchers do not rule out that the heads may have also served as war trophies. Paintings on pottery often reveal warriors holding trophy heads, which may have come from warring in the Nazca area. Considering the extensive lifespan of the Nazca culture over more than seven centuries, it also seems likely that the role and purpose of trophy heads evolved over time. In the words of Professor Kelly Knudsen, the lead author of the study from Arizona State University, quote, it is possible that the role of the trophy heads changed over time. It is possible that these individuals were sacrificed, but we don't have any evidence for that, end quote. Italian archaeologist Giuseppe Orifici, who we mentioned earlier, who has worked since 1982 excavating the ancient Nazca ceremonial city of Kawachi, approximately 28 kilometers away from the modern city of Nazca, explained how, quote, In 26 years of digging at Kawachi, we have never come across any head used as a war trophy. We are rather talking of offering heads used in rituals. They belong to people of both sexes, and in most cases, they have been buried inside the ceremonial center. The images of disembodied heads in pottery and textiles are either representations of myths or indicate the high social status of the people who carry them, end quote. A further insight into the practice comes from an academic paper titled Ritual Uses of Trophy Heads in Ancient Nazca Society by archaeologist and professor of anthropology Donald A. Prue of the University of Massachusetts. And this was originally published in a 2001 book, Ritual Sacrifice in Ancient Peru. The careful preparation of the trophy heads, described above, was only the first step in the ultimate ritual use and disposition of these remains. The main practitioner in such rituals was the shaman, who acted as an intermediary between the spirit world and the everyday world. Judging from the archaeological evidence and the ceramic iconography, the major components of many Nazca rituals were, one, music provided by clay panpipes, clay trumpets, drums, and rattles, two, ritual drinks, which may have included chicha, corn beer, but also involved the ingestion of hallucinogenic drugs derived from the San Pedro cactus, three, the use of trophy heads, and four, processions to sacred places such as Kawachi. Among the ritual ceremonies depicted in the iconography are many portraying a musician or shaman playing panpipes, surrounded by images of cacti, large storage containers holding some type of beverage, and participants drinking from small cups. It seems clear that the cacti are deliberately displayed to indicate their role in providing the connection to the spirit world by means of the mescaline drug they contain. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Glenn Mason in the UK. Now, back to the show. So you see how these theories are starting to form now, based on the findings uh, scientifically, what they find on the tooth enamel, and as we'll see in a second here, what they find in the hair, and that they start to piece this together based on things like what they find in pottery. But not everybody agrees with each other, uh, as you'll see before. Like Dr. Barnhart was saying, is like they don't really see many scenes of warfare in their art. So yeah. in any case, though, I think it's important for us to know some concepts of why 
the Nazca and other Peruvian cultures practiced head taking, why they thought it was important and what they thought they would achieve, even though the modern world just sees this as a barbaric and gruesome custom. So other excerpts to note from this paper include, quote, in order to understand the role of trophy heads in Nazca society, a brief discussion of the nature of Nazca religion is necessary. Unlike the theocratic state religions of cultures like the Egyptians, Sumerians, Aztec, or Inca, Nazca religion existed at a more primitive level, incorporating the concept of animism or belief in spirit beings. And this is Dr. Donald Prue saying this. I agree with Richard Townsend, who noted that the Nazca, like other Indian peoples of the Americas, believed that there was an active, sacred relationship between man and nature. According to this mode of thought, the divine order of the universe was reflected in the organization of society and in all important activities of human life. Thus, the control of water, planting of fields, harvesting of crops, preparations and celebrations of war, inauguration of rulers, and similar communal events had symbolic meaning and were bound in a ramifying network of connections to the forces and phenomena of the surrounding land and sky. This connection of cosmological ideas and social processes is the central point of inquiry in approaching the Nazca world. And I laid this out so you could start to see that uh, there's one element here that they seem to hold important above all others, and it's not a hard leap of logic. Uh, but coming back to the words of Donald Prue, quote, the religious practitioners in Nazca society were shamans, not priests. Shamans were the intermediaries between the spirit world and the everyday world. They used various means to contact the spirits, including hallucinogenic drugs to induce visions and to gain control over supernatural forces. Most of the ceremonial scenes in the ceramic iconography described above, so talking about the iconography of the ceramics described above, uh, were conducted by these individuals. It is likely that sacred places, such as sacred mountains, as well as paraphernalia, including panpipes, mouth masks, animal skin cloaks, and spondylus shell necklaces, were part of this religious complex. Therefore, Nazca religion incorporated elements of magic rather than prayer and took place at sacred sites and locations rather than in formal temples, which may be uh, explaining why you don't see large structures uh, for these things. And maybe the open plains of Nazca had something to do with it. Anyway, getting back to his paper, the taking of trophy heads and their ritual burial and caches can be best understood in this context. In the environmentally hostile world of the Nazca, many of the rituals carried out by the shamans related to propitiating and controlling the forces of nature, especially those responsible for adequate water, good soils, and a sufficient harvest. The prime purpose for taking heads was magical in nature, to ensure the continued abundance of the food crops. The trophy heads were symbolic of, uh, or a metaphor for, regeneration and rebirth. This concept can be seen iconographically in various scenes where plants are growing from the mouths of trophy heads. In the same vein, trophy heads often substitute visually and metaphorically for plants or parts of plants. In their view of the world, the Nazca people must have placed great importance on the human head as a source of power. Burial caches of trophy heads must have resulted in the concentration of a great amount of ritual power. So jumping ahead in Donald Prue's paper to the final conclusion, Trophy heads can also be seen as offerings to the spiritual forces represented by the mythical beings painted on the pottery. Some scholars argue that these mythical beings are actually costumed shamans in the process of carrying out rituals or perhaps transforming themselves into spirit beings. 
While this may be true for some images of the anthropomorphic mythical being, which, by the way, we've talked about this, mm -hmm. that's one of the most common deity images in Nazca artwork. Coming back to Donald Prue, I believe that the majority of these representations are visualizations of the powerful spirits themselves whom the Nazca believed controlled their destiny. The trophy heads symbolized not only the most precious offerings to these creatures, but also symbolized the relationship between head-taking, blood, regeneration, and fertility. The religion of the Nazca people is complex, and their ideology and worldview quite foreign to that of today's complex societies. We can only begin to understand it by recognizing the unity the Nazca felt between nature and everyday events, and the role that magic played in this process. Trophy heads, perhaps more than any other symbol, exemplify these attributes and the attempt to control the supernatural forces which affected their lives. So that's a fascinating academic interpretation by Professor Donald Prue that the heads weren't so much as trophy heads as a prize of defeated enemies, a trophy per se, or as a humiliation, right, a taunt, right. but perhaps more like a talisman for magical control over the environment. But how do the severed heads connect with the Nazca lines, if they do? Following this line of thinking, if the heads aren't of Nazcan enemies from neighboring regions, but within their own ranks, then a recent theory emerges that these heads were taken as ritual sacrifices in a way to become tokens of power and magic and perhaps in staged ritual battles. Right, right. And the battlefield is not at disputed borders, but within some of the Nazca lines, the theory goes. Some scholars believe warfare and Andean beliefs is linked to fertility. The losers of the ritual battles sacrifice their heads, which are then offered to the deities to implore for water that grows crops. Crops grow people. Right. By some dating calculations of the trophy heads, it reinforces for some researchers that the collection of these heads directly corresponds with the availability of water in the region, because there is a significant increase in the number of heads found around the same time as when the catastrophic drought in the region is thought to have occurred. So it might indicate that the severed heads' rituals increased as water availability waned and the people became more desperate. Right. So that's one theory. But, you know, recent research indicates that it wasn't just warriors who ingested stimulants and psychoactive concoctions before being sacrificed. It seems men, women, and children of all ages could be part of the ritual sacrifice process. To show just how recent and that research into the mystery of the Nazca and their practices continue to this day, this article just came out in October in Live Science, which is a summation of an academic paper submitted by a Polish team authored by Dagmara M. Socha, a doctoral candidate at the Center for Andean Studies at the University of Warsaw in Poland, along with Marzena Saikutera and Giuseppe Orofici. So again, we see his name pop up here as one of the prominent researchers in the area. But these are some interesting findings. Okay, so this paper, which was just published in October of 2022, titled Use of Psychoactive and Stimulant Plants on the South Coast of Peru from the Early Intermediate to Late Intermediate Period, found in the Journal of Archaeological Science. You can tell they, they don't really go in for snappy titles. Um, yeah. <laughs> academic. Right. You'll see an example of a snappy uh, uh, dramatic title here in a second. And you can also see how this information gets filtered down to an understandable form for the likes of us folks. Well, this uh, summation article came from Live Science, and essentially it's reporting that the researchers had conducted toxicology examinations on the trophy head of a child. The Live Science article states that an analysis was completed on a single strand of hair from the child's mummy skull and revealed that, quote, the child consumed a psychoactive cactus prior to execution as part of the ceremony. It seems that the child's skull was the earliest case found to date of a trophy head from an individual living on the southern Peruvian coast 
where the skull showed traces of San Pedro consumption prior to a ritual death. The Life Science article goes on to report that, quote, the child's preserved head was one of 22 human remains associated with the ancient Nazca society examined in a new study. All of these individuals lived during the pre-Hispanic era, 3500 BC to AD 476, and were buried near the southern coast of Peru, where they were excavated during the Nazca Project, a long-running archaeological program that began in 1982. While scientists are uncertain of the child victim's sex and age at death, they reported that the child had ingested San Pedro cactus, Echinopsis pacanoi. I'm not sure if the, uh, the CH is a hard... It's a the hard K. Yeah, it's probably going to go with so, the hard yeah. K. So Echinosis okay. pacanoi, a prickly plant taken for its, quote, strong hallucinogenic properties, end quote, and used by indigenous civilizations of the Americas in traditional medicines and during rituals. So uh, the lead author on the paper, Dagmar Socha, says, quote, it's also the first evidence that some of the victims who were made into trophy heads were given stimulants before they died, end quote. And then continuing on with the highlights from the Life Science article on, on what the study consisted of and what they found, quote, for the study, Socha and her team collected samples of individual hairs from four trophy heads, three of which belonged to adults and from 18 mummies of both adults and children. Toxicological examinations revealed that many of the deceased had consumed some type of psychoactive or stimulant plant prior to their deaths. Those ingested items include coca leaves, known as a source of the psychoactive substance cocaine, as well as San Pedro cactus, which contains mescaline, a psychedelic drug. The researchers also detected traces of Banisteriopsis capi, or capi, the main compound in ayahuasca, a hallucinogenic beverage that contains harmine and harmaline, two compounds found and used in modern antidepressants, end quote. That's interesting. Yeah. That those things are in there and uh, still being used in ancient times, still being used to some degree. So continuing on, Socha and the team also found it interesting to see how many people had access to these types of plants. They also wanted to study what the trade route of these types of plants was like back then. They know that coca leaves weren't cultivated on Peru's southern coast, so coca had to be brought here from either the regions of northern Peru or the Amazon. So tracing the trade routes, they found that the transition of the plants began early, and drug use dates from 100 before current era to 450 current era. Our research shows that these plants were extremely important to different cultures for medical or visionary effect, especially since there's no written record from this time period. So what we know about Nazca and other nearby cultures is from archaeological investigations, Socha said. Professor of Ethnobiology Rainier Busman, who was not part of this study, but for the past 16 years has researched medicinal plant usage by indigenous Peruvians, told Live Science that there was always a little trade of plants going on in the region, from the Amazon and up and down the Peruvian coast. Quote, these plants were traditionally used for ceremonial or medicinal purposes and were sometimes combined. I've never seen any reports of recreational use. For these cultures, there was always a specific purpose, end quote, Busman said. So while the team concludes they know that the plants were used for medicinal ceremonial purposes, they still don't know how often or widespread their usage was in Nazca culture. Socha said, quote, in the case of San Pedro, it's not well preserved in an archaeological context, and in the case of the coca leaves and Banisteriopsis capi, they were never found to be growing in this region during that time period, end quote. Along with the human remains, the team also found items like textiles, ceramic pots, weaving tools, and a chuspa, which is a type of bag used for carrying cocoa leaves interred at the burial sites. 
Right. Well, they had at their disposal some medicinal ritual, uh, powerful drugs, but they had to be brought in, which is also part of the theory that we're seeing being formed here, where a lot of stuff was coming into the Nazca and into the Kawachi area, not originating there. Same thing with the uh, the birds. Uh, they, these are water birds. Yeah. So it's an important area that people are traveling quite a long ways to be at, which is hot, dusty, dry, barren. They want to infuse this with water to bring life to it. But yeah, it's coming from different areas. It's So it's fascinating. There is something very important about this site when you could just really kind of stay on the coast, maybe edge out a little bit. Uh, but again, that's, I think, maybe a foreshadowing of where we're going with why this place is so magical and chosen by these people when maybe you didn't really have to venture this far in. It does all put check marks in the column for a pilgrimage type mm -hmm. site, right, right? You know, where are we going to go? When you talk about those shells and everything else, I just wonder whenever I move on to the next plane, mm -hmm. somebody comes along later and digs me up, they're going to be like, <laughs> this guy drank a lot of Diet Dr. Pepper. And uh, the hallucinogenic like, Diet Dr. Pepper with, uh, with right. uh, yes, with a sprig of coca. But, but seriously, <laughs> it, yeah, it, you could view it as, and some of these papers actually, they don't come out and say it, but what they're hinting at is that it could be a little like a ancient Coachella <laughs> where people are coming together. Yeah. That's just for music, but they, you know, but there's special rituals, there's music, uh, there are people doing rituals, there's food, but they're bringing it in for the area. And and again, like Coachella, it's a flat, dusty, open field. So you're not really damaging too much. And that's not really ritually significant where that's held, but these festivals are uh, because they can support a bunch of people in that area. And then looking to uh, festivals like Burning Man, which is out on the playa, Black Rock Desert, that is out in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. But that's the idea. You want to get out on a deserted plane of sorts where you can light off a bunch of pyrotechnics and uh, have some good, safe, nutty fun. But it is an extreme environment. It's uh, alkaline dust. It's very windy. Every day there's a, there's a windstorm. Uh, there could be rain. It's hot. It's dry. And so to be there, you have to be prepared because there's nothing there to find. So you're bringing it in. All right, folks. Well, this next section gets even a little more gruesome and deals with children, violence, and even more drugs. So this is a little bit of a listener discretion advised warning for audience members or little ones who may be sensitive to these scientific findings. We'll give you five seconds to pause and then slide or advance to the next section. So, uh, Sarah, how long does this section go for? Three minutes and 46 seconds, starting now. Outstanding. Thank you, Sarah. So we'll see you then if you're skipping ahead. And for those of you who chose to stay, in a related article on live science just from October of 2022 titled 76 Child Sacrifice Victims with Their Hearts Ripped Out Found in Peru Excavation. So there's your more uh, sensational title for an article. Yeah. Well, this article states that the remains of dozens of child sacrifice victims were unearthed in Peru at excavations at Pampa La Cruz near Huanchaco, and many more are likely to be found. Gabriel Prieto, assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Florida, who directs the excavations at Pampa La Cruz, said all 76 skeletons had a, quote, transversal clean cut across the sternum, end quote, Prieto said, which suggests that, quote, they possibly opened up the rib cage and then they possibly extracted the heart, end quote. 
Well, their team found the remains buried on top of an artificial mound with the feet pointed toward the east, but it's not clear to them why in that position and why on that mound. They previously thought the area would be free of Chimu culture, child sacrifices, but found the opposite. A little side note here uh, is that there can be theories that are developed by the top scientists and researchers in an area, and they can be wrong with a new discovery. That's what we were talking about a little bit earlier, is that it's just yes. the next discovery around the corner. The other thing is that uh, that 19, was it 1976 documentary with William Shatner talks about the fantastic Chimu culture and the amazing geographic building sites, either residential areas, but it's very geometrically intricate. A lot of squares, a lot of inter, uh, interlocked designs. It's one of those things you really have to see. Don't rely on our crappy descriptions for it. You need to see photos of these. If uh, we can find any, we'll, we'll post them. But just do a check for Chimu culture. But that's what we're talking about here. Not too far from the Nazca. After several years of excavations at Pampala Cruz to date, 323 child sacrifice victims have been found and another 137 children and three adult sacrifice victims found at the nearby site of Las Llamas, also with the children's hearts removed. Prieto said that there could be more than 1,000 victims discovered near Huanchaco. Radiocarbon dating has not yet been done on the newly discovered 76 remains, but previously found victims from Pampala Cruz were found to be between AD 1100 and 1200. It's unclear why the Chimu people would have practiced child sacrifice on such a large scale, but Prieto says the Chimu also built an artificial irrigation system and new planting fields nearby, and perhaps some of the sacrifices were done to, quote, sanctify, end quote, this newly built agricultural system. Peter Eckout, a professor of pre-Columbian art and archaeology who was not involved in the excavations, but told Life Science that what's striking about the discovery is the scale of the sacrifices. But since writing was not used in Peru at this time, there are no written records about the children. Why they were carried out is difficult to tell. But problems with climate or environmental changes that disrupted agriculture may have played a role. Independent bioarchaeologist Catherine Gator told Live Science that, quote, I think the reason for the sacrifices was likely related in some way to a cultural response to environmental changes that brought about significant cultural upheaval. There may have been associations with environmental events like an El Nino, for example, a climate cycle in which warm water from the Pacific Ocean shifts closer to South America, causing changes in the weather, she said. Okay, well, that's the end of that. This is now our jumping back in point, folks. Uh, is everyone who skipped ahead back with us? Excellent. Cracking on, then. So again, getting back to a significant connection to Nazca and their reasons for head severing and collecting, this all may point to ritual practices to facilitate rain from the deities or forces of nature, and may have gotten more desperate as that water supply literally dried up from environmental or geological factors. And finally, revisiting a ritual connection to the lines and the hypothesis that they may have been battle or sacrifice boundaries, perhaps like lines on a football or a baseball field. The thinking goes like this. San Pedro cactus cooler, coca leaves, and maybe other psychoactive drugs were ingested by the celebrants, ceremonies conducted, perhaps accompanied by drums and rattles, clay trumpets and flutes, and either a battle or a sacred ceremony process begins. The losers, the injured, or just the chosen had their heads removed, the heads were processed, and then buried with other funerary items in order to ensure good luck with water. In turn, with crops, in turn with fertility and survival, and a bountiful continuation of their society, until it all didn't seem to work anymore for some reason. 
I'm not sure this would be an overall reason for the lines as boundaries, as we've seen now evidence that, again, it wasn't just all warriors or fighting-age men whose heads were put on a rope. But maybe that was part of it, as the theory goes. So there it is. And a reminder of something we talked about, or rather Professor Barnhart said, to keep in mind. Quote, nearly every burial chamber in the Nazca area includes multiple skulls, typically called trophy heads. But it's odd to Professor Barnhart that you never see any depictions of war in their art. Or it's what's been interpreted as war. Right. And then with Professor Eric Klein saying, quote, it's quite possible that these were used as something like ceremonial processions, which has been suggested. But here we're invoking religion to explain something whose uses are actually not completely clear to us, which is also good food for thought. So that makes us wonder, was battles against their enemies or even mock ritual battles with violent results actually part of the reason for the lines or even a part of their culture, or did they just not make art about it? Or are there crafts that we have yet to discover? Also, remember that he said that artifacts not yet discovered or known about, like the plant materials used for their homes, etc., could skew the archaeological record of these people because we're creating a narrative without them. Recent discoveries are always changing accepted theories, so one can wonder about the findings yet to be discovered and how they will change history and the modern understanding. But the ritual battle theory is just one more theory among many for the overall comprehensive purpose of the Nazca lines. So now let's, and I'm not going to say pivot, but let's turn our team. We're not supposed to say pivot anymore, right? People are tired of pivoting. I don't like it. I'm not going to. I like pivoting, but it makes me think of basketball. But let's turn our attention to a not so widely and academically accepted, shall we say, Mm. direction that many of us have been waiting for. We're not going to say aliens, but it's aliens. Well, we'll say alternative theories which is what uh, I've been waiting for because this is the fun part. Not that the other stuff wasn't fun and exciting, but this is uh, the stuff to make you scratch your head and wonder. There's a lot of repurposing going on. You and I have talked about this. Uh, We mentioned it earlier. Repurposing happens at all ancient sites, and it can go on for hundreds or thousands of years. And I think in a lot of cases, there's not necessarily any direct connection. It might not be continuous between who first established the religious site And the people that come along later, there may be complete gaps in human existence in the area. But the other folks that come along say, oh, look at this. This must be important. Yeah. Look at that pyramid. Let's put a pyramid on top of that one. Well, Or look at that runway. Let's put one on top of it. Why did they do this? I think you see that a lot. So it it calls into question, how long can you keep these uh, myths and legends going of a particular culture? And new people come in. And that's what we said earlier. You may have maybe not a disrespecting. Maybe it was a disrespecting. It's like, well, those are those old fogies. They did this. And that's uh, we know that's not true anymore. We're going to do this. We've seen that uh, also in uh, Gobekli Tepe, where they filled in one of the older, maybe the oldest structure there. And that's also something of interesting note from the series is that it seems the newer ones got less and less elaborate, less technically involved, as if the knowledge to make these and complete these was somehow slipping away over 100, 200, 300 years. People were forgetting how their ancestors were able to accomplish this. So they did lesser works. Uh, You see one thing built on top of the other at, uh, I believe, at the monument at Cholula in Mexico. Yes. Which is also just mind-blowing. And you see these uh, massive earthworks being altered. And as Hancock might say, it's because after a long stretch of years, maybe millennia, the position of the stars and constellations change. So you need to update your monuments. If that is part of their astronomical record keeping, you have to update it over the years. And that's what he thinks is uh, happening there. And again, it's tied to a 
astronomy, but it starts to make you scratch your head a little more because there will be some lines that run quite a long ways. Uh, one runway is about 200 feet wide and about 2,296 feet long. So it's a little uh, under half a mile long and it extends over several mountain summits where the ridge lines had to be cleared and flattened. This is not Nazca. This is uh, an area which is a section of uh, the Palpa to the north, where it's only flat and a small section to the south. Most of it is these ridged hills, uh, mountains, if you will. They're not just foothills. These are pretty substantial. Imagine what it takes to flatten to a very good degree the ridge line of a whole mountain range or just a, a ridge of, uh, well, if you want to say foothills, it's quite a feat. A lot more so than scraping uh, these drawings into the ground. Yeah, that's the whole thing. I mean, the Nazca lines themselves, it's a big project, but there's other more sophisticated stuff there that people don't even really talk about. So when you look at everything going on in the area, not just in Nazca, but in adjacent Palpa, like you mentioned, and throughout the region, you realize we're only seeing a very small part of a big picture, not just geographically big, but in the scope of time and human history. In fact, the site may very well redefine when human history actually began. So I wanted to see if we could find a way to frame the alien angle about it that, that isn't offensive or racist, because frankly, there are some racist ideas tied up in some of those viewpoints. And the way that I like to look at it is time. I mean, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Humans have been here for like 1% of that or less than 1% of that. If aliens do exist and they figured out interstellar travel, either conventionally or by folding time and space or some other method that eludes us, then I think it's silly of us to think that the planet might not have been visited at some point in the last several billion years when we weren't even around. Now, one would think that if aliens can get here, they might not show up during the nanosecond that humanity has been here too. On the other hand, and we've covered this on the show, there's plenty of people that think that not only do aliens exist, but they, they've been here and they're crossing paths with them, like uh, our guest Terry Lovelace. So the question becomes, did aliens cross paths with the Nazca peoples? Or, and I have to be honest, I'm leaning a little this way myself after the series, did those folks figure out how to fly? Mm. I don't for one second think they couldn't have done that. I also think it's possible they could have done it. Well, actually, this is how it would have to be. And the technology was lost. And then we had to wait for it to be reinvented hundreds of years later by the Wright brothers. But w whatever the case, right now, we just don't get to know. Forrest, what do you think when it comes to the alien hypothesis? <laughs> I will say that it never made sense to me, even as a kid, that we're it, this is it. Or as yeah. George, George Carlin says, the, if, if this is it, if we're the only planet, then the universe aimed very low and expected very little. <laughs> that's there's no one else out there i i don't yeah. uh it just doesn't seem possible to me so okay so they're out there i don't think they're again people are saying well we haven't seen them yet it's like if they exist they're already here that's kind of my basic thing and then if they're already here who knows how long they've already been here <laughs> That's going to wrap up our series on the Nazca Lines of Peru. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Hey, y'all. I'm Maggie. Hi. I'm Glenn Mason in the UK. Hi, I'm Nicola, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. I don't know if you want my... 
Surname, but it's M A S O N. Love the show. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.